0: Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes
1: you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Line
2: wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Sunny skies at the moment. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, a California woman, Lily Trujillo, shares the story of her 16-year-old daughter, Valentina, who was killed in a street racing accident and how all this led to starting her own organization.
1: The first thing I thought when I was underneath that parking lot was that I, was, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I was going to do anything I could to prevent a parent from losing a child, to prevent this horrible pain.
3: That conversation coming up in just a moment. In other news, okay, trick-or-treaters, don't get too sad. Halloween may not be a total bust. However, the CDC is issuing some guidance to celebrate Halloween and even Thanksgiving. Now, the agency says activities such as trick-or-treating or or attending parties can be, quote, high risk. Now, in a statement issued this week, the organization said not to use costume masks in place of cloth mask. For Thanksgiving, the CDC recommends avoiding, if there are any, parades, crowded parties, or road races. And for those Black Friday shoppers, the agency says it's best to sit this one out. In related news, Georgia remains 14th in the nation for new coronavirus infections in the week leading up to September 20th. That's according to the latest White House Coronavirus Task Force report obtained by WABE News. Now the number of counties in the quote red zone for high levels of COVID-19 transmission also remains stable. 47 met that threshold. Now, the White House says state leaders should expand testing capacity as fall approaches and limit all gatherings to 25 people or fewer. And at this time, there's been 308,221 COVID-19 cases confirmed since March right here in the state. 27,490 have been hospitalized, and of those, 5,026 were ICU admissions. And 6,677 Georgians have reportedly died due to the coronavirus. And the top five counties with the number of confirmed cases, well, there are as follows. Fulton, Gwinnett, Cobb, DeKalb, and Hall counties. 18 to 29-year-olds remain the age group with the highest rate of hospitalizations. As always, this is according to the State Department of Public Health. And finally, those numbers are the reason why the Atlanta Falcons and Atlanta United officials say both teams will start inviting some fans back to watch the games in person. But that won't start till October. Team officials, along with the stadium officials, say they made the decision based on declining COVID-19 cases statewide. So here's how it will work before all y'all start trying to get tickets. They will be sold at limited capacity, starting with the Falcons home game versus the Panthers on October 11th. And to test the stadium's operations, the Falcons will host about 500 fans for this Sunday's game against the Chicago Bears. Team officials say they will collaborate with national and local health officials. However, they did say they may stop selling tickets if Georgia's coronavirus cases spike again. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Democratic members of Georgia's congressional delegation, well, they're asking the Georgia Bureau of Investigation to probe into allegations of unauthorized medical procedures and medical neglect at the Irwin Detention Center located in Osceola, Georgia. Now, Representatives Sanford Bishop, Hank Johnson, Lucy McBath, and David Scott, no relation, are the latest to request an investigation after a whistleblower complaint was filed by Don Wooten, a nurse working in the detention center. Now, Wooten alleges. Unauthorized surgery, such as hysterectomies, were performed on immigrant women detained at the center. And the doctor at the center of the investigation is Dr. Mahandra Amin. Now we'll read a statement from Dr. Amin's attorney, Scott Grubman, in just a moment. But first, joining me now is attorney Alexis Ruiz, founder and managing partner at Zambrano and Ruiz, who's also representing two women currently detained at Elward. counsel Ruiz, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Rose.
3: Let's begin here. So you're representing two women who are currently detained. Are you also representing any women who were previously detained at the Irwin Detention Center?
0: Yes. I still represent Milady Cardente. Um She was released on Monday um, from custody at Irwin, and she is back home now in Virginia.
3: Are any of your clients alleging any medical procedures were performed without their consent?
0: So, Milady did actually have um, a procedure done at the, um, the clinic doctor by Dr. Amin Mahendra, and she was unclear as to what ha- exactly had been done. Um, when I went to visit her last Wednesday at the Irwin County Detention Center, she uh, unbuttoned her jumpsuit and lifted her shirt and showed me a couple scars that she had um, below her, her abdomen Um, which were small and purplish colored. Um, So she had actually requested her medical records, she tells me, um, about 15 times. And she had not received them until Monday when we went to to the doctor's office in person and requested them then.
3: Counselor, what have your clients told you about the doctor in terms of his manner,
0: so the one detail that Milady does focus on is the fact that there, there was a lack of communication. She, she never seemed to, to get enough information um, when she went to, to the physician's office. She did say there was an interpreter there. Um, however, she still wasn't clear as to what exactly was done with her by the time she left and even um, for weeks after that
3: was a language barrier with the doctor?
0: Yes, my client speaks Spanish. Um, Dr. Mahendra from what I understand does not speak Spanish.
3: What can you reveal? What can you share about the procedure your client had or thought she was having?
0: So, when intake is conducted at the Irwin County Detention Center, the women are asked when they're asked when they got their period last. Um, and Milady Milady's period was was delayed. Um, And she said that as a result, the 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 nurse at the center recommended that she go and get checked. Um, So she did go, and she had a couple consultations before she went in for the procedure on August 14th, and she was told that she had ovarian cysts. Um, After she returned, after she had the procedure done on the 14th of August, Milady returned on the 26th of August. And from what she tells me is the doctor informed her that via the interpreter that she had um, some sort of, of cancer growth in um, a fallopian tube and that, that they, they were able to find that based on a biopsy that they had done on the 14th. Um, she, she didn't receive any clarity as to whether or not she still had that growth. Mm-hmm. Um, So, I mean, it it was just that there was a lot of confusion. She was very confused. She was requesting her medical records while she was in detention from um, the detention center. And I mean, she was worried, obviously.
3: Has she had a follow up? Do we know if if they did remove the cysts and if they removed anything else?
0: From the medical records that we were um, able to obtain this week, it does seem that the cysts were removed. Um, there were many pages of records and we needed to leave Oscilla very quickly because I needed to take Milady to the airport um, that same day. Um, however, she hasn't had a, che- um, a checkup since then because it's only been a couple days and she just returned home. However, she does plan to, mm-hmm. to, to get a follow-up.
3: But to be clear, she now has, you all have those medical records from a lady?
0: We do have the medical records, yes.
3: But for your other clients, they are seeking medical records?
0: One of them is seeking medical records. Um, she did get a couple pages that she requested on her own, and my, my third client, she um, hasn't had any medical conducted while detained. Um, she's not seeking her medical records.
3: Have you had a chance to speak to Dr. Amin,
0: I have not. Um, as an immigration attorney, my focus is on the immigration aspect of my client's mm-hmm. case, um, and I haven't. I haven't made an attempt to speak to Dr. Amin.
3: Now we received a statement from Scott Grubman, who is Dr. Amin's attorney, and he writes, "quote We are aware of the whistleblower's allegations as they relate to Dr. Amin, and vehemently deny them. Dr. Amin is a highly respected physician." was dedicated his adult life to treating a high-risk, underserved population in rural Georgia, close quote. Your response to that, attorney?
0: Um, as an immigration attorney who represents detainees in the Irwin County Detention Center, I can say um, that there is a lot of um, miscommunication or, or lack of interpretation between officers and um, in the Irwin County Detention Center and the detainees, the allegations against Dr. Amin, I have no personal knowledge on on um, the statement that was that was given by his attorney. Mm-hmm. However, I do know that from what I've heard from many many people who have been detained at Irwin, um, they they make many requests for their records and they make many requests t- to see the nurse or to be taken off campus to be checked and it takes a long time for the records or or for their requests to be responded to. Um, So I do know that there is um, an opportunity there to to, to better the system that they have in place to communicate between the physicians and the deportation officers um, and the officers who work for LaSalle Correction Center um, and the detainees.
3: And Attorney Ruiz, you have been to the detention center? You've been to Irwin?
0: Yes. I go relatively frequently.
3: Describe the environment there, the interactions with the staff, what do you see?
0: When I was there last, um, I I was standing by my car and I was writing down the names of the detainees that I was going to see and their alien registration numbers. And the security officer did circle several times until she finally stopped and asked me what I was doing. And I said, well, I'm here to see my clients. Um, and she's like, oh, are you an attorney? And then I said, yes. Um, and then um, she just continued to circle around. And when I walked into the detention center, um, the security officer was speaking to the front desk person. I believe informing them that somebody had arrived. And when I when I walked in, um, the officers, they ask for my name and, and they ask for which um, which detainees I'm going to be seeing. They check your temperature. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're taken into the attorney visitation room. Um, and the, the door locks behind you when you walk in, um, and you have to press a button for, for, to, to be let out. Um, so I do wish there was a different way of doing Mm -hmm. that. I don't want to be locked into a room. Mm -hmm. However, um, the, the officers then bring in your client and then, you press the button whenever you're ready to see your next client. So you can either stay in the visitation room or you can walk back out by the front desk and wait until your next client is brought in.
3: And what have your clients told you about the conditions there? Have they revealed that to you?
0: Yeah, so so frequently my clients tell me um, that they don't believe that they're receiving sufficient nutrition in the food that they're provided at the detention center, um, that they aren't provided with sufficient cleaning supplies, which they're, sp- they're particularly concerned about now with the current crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been told that they're afraid to speak up because they're afraid of being retaliated against. And they have told me that the officers treat the Spanish speakers differently from the English speakers, being that the English speakers um, are, are favored. So they feel discriminated against within the detention center.
3: When you say for the fear of retaliation, could that be physical or just through some other action?
0: So the detainees, um, they've they specifically told me that the, the way that some of their concerns are addressed are by the detainee being whoever is making the claim, mm-hmm. um, they're separated. There are different cells. C1, C2, which have the capacity to hold many women. Um, But then there, I believe what they've described to me are little trailers that are still on campus, but just separated from the building itself. Um, And Milady specifically was in one of those trailers um, with two other women and Milady asked why she had been separated and she never received a response um and the other women from the other women detained at Irwin who were in C1 or, or where Milady was before she was separated they told me that they also made requests for for Milady to be taken back with the rest of them um Milady tells me that she many times spoke up for women and defended them um and therefore she was held in very high regard by the other detainees they saw her sort of as a as a leader mm-hmm. um and she was separated, and Milady believes it was because she was very outspoken.
3: And again, for Clarity Attorney Ruiz, as far as you know, especially as it relates to Milady, she has not know if she's suffered any short or long-term complications, physical especially, uh, based on this procedure because she hasn't had a follow-up exam.
0: That is correct. She does tell me that um, she still feels pain when she moves um, different ways, when she sits. However, I I don't know for certain um, whether she she has any long term complications. I mean, God God willing, she doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but she would need to do a follow up consultation.
3: And your other clients, what's next? You're still seeking some medical records.
0: Yes, for one of them, um, she declined to, to, she it was, she was advised by by the doctor to also um, have a procedure done, a gynecological procedure done. However, she declined to have it done. I, I do believe that it's some sort of cyst abnormality is what was spotted because that is what she explained. However, I can't say for certain because um, I, I don't know exactly mm-hmm. what was said.
3: Hmm. How long have they've been detained
0: the second one has been detained since she received an order of removal from immigration judge it has been over 180 days she was born in the ussr um, so she doesn't have documents for for her return Um, the ussr no longer exists Mm -hmm. so I believe ICE is, is trying to either send her to Ukraine or to Russia. Um, that's, that's up in the air. And then for my first client, um, she, she has been detained since I want to say February.
3: And Milady, is she still awaiting an immigration, some type of immigration hearing?
0: So Milady actually received an order of removal. She was admitted as a lawful permanent resident in 2016. Um, therefore, she didn't have any relief available except asylum, but she doesn't have um, a fear of Cuba. She didn't, of returning to Cuba. She didn't suffer persecution prior to coming to the United States. Mm-hmm. So she did take an order and based on her medical complications, I requested um, for her to be released, and that was approved on Friday of last week.
3: If she has an order for removal. Would that also somehow delay that the date that she needs to leave?
0: So she, Milady will be reporting to the local ICE um, Enforcement and Removal Office in Virginia, and they are in the process of securing documents for her to return to her native country of Cuba and it is likely that um, ba- the pandemic will delay that process mm-hmm. um, because there's a lot of closures and consulates and embassies, and the acquisition of documents is taking much longer than usual. Um, and she can't be detained. She's particularly susceptible to to COVID. Um, therefore, yes, for now, I can I can only see her her removal being being um, delayed
3: what's the percentage of asylum cases? What's the percentage of your clients that actually win an asylum case?
0: So there's this wonderful database that Syracuse has created called TRAC and they um, are able to, or they they track all the asylum decisions all over the country. And it's really a a wonderful tool. Um, So based on what the data that TRAC has provided, if, you are fighting a case for asylum here in Georgia, which includes the Atlanta immigration court and the Stewart immigration court in Lumpkin, um, you have approximately 2% or less chance of winning your asylum case. Two. I know it's, it's, it's ridiculous.
3: 2%? And on usually on what grounds?
0: Yes. So so there are five grounds under which you could seek asylum if you've suffered persecution um, based on your race, nationality, religion, um, political opinion, or for being part of a particular social group, which must have immutable characteristics. And you need to be able to to show that nexus that you suffered persecution on account Mm -hmm. of one of those grounds. Um, Being able to corroborate your claim with sufficient evidence is a huge challenge for for people seeking asylum in the united states getting the documents from um the many many people have made um, reports police reports but they're unable to get them because the police many times um is is part obviously of of the corruption in their home countries and Many people, for example, from Venezuela or Nicaragua, um, their, their infrastructures, the, the bureaucracy back home is highly inefficient, very disorganized, um, plus many people don't have the resources to be able to, to go and obtain the documents that they need. So it's a huge challenge um, as immigration attorneys to be able to present these cases in the way that they deserve to be presented on account of uh, like just an inability to be able Mm -hmm. to get all of the evidence that we should be able to present to an immigration judge.
3: And for Milady, was she seeking asylum based on one of those grounds?
0: No, Milady was not seeking asylum. She was admitted as a lawful permanent resident in 2016 while she was still in Cuba Um, So she was an an LPR um, prior to her her current Mm -hmm. proceedings.
3: But your other clients, they're seeking asylum?
0: One of them is seeking asylum. That is correct.
3: If not for these allegations from Don Wooten, the nurse, now there are calls for an investigation, how optimistic are you that for your client's sake and others who are making these allegations that things will change or... Or would you like to see that detention center closed? For a long time, people have been calling for the closure of that detention center.
0: I would absolutely like for that detention center to be closed. That would be that would be a dream come true. Um. I, I think that it's very courageous of the woman, of the women who have decided to speak up and say something. I think they're a very vulnerable population. They don't speak English. They're three hours away from Atlanta in Osceola, Georgia. Um, they're under the care of individuals who don't speak their native language. Um, it's a very intimidating situation. It's very confusing for for a lot of the women, um, and and I, I just commend them and I'm proud of them for 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 communicating and for being willing to speak up and and it's really been wonderful that the media has been covering this issue which <laughs> as immigration attorneys we deal with so much but but hmm. if it, it feels nice that people are finally paying attention.
3: Attorney Ruiz I'm curious what's your caseload like?
0: My caseload I have at least 150 cases probably. You alone? Yes. Um, However, they're not all removal defense. Mm -hmm. Some of them are naturalization or green cards, um, visa extensions, um, things Mm -hmm. that are that are affirmative versus defensive.
3: And then finally, to your knowledge, they have to, by signature, give their consent for any medical procedure. To your knowledge, is that correct?
0: As far as I know, that is correct.
3: Even if they're not sure what happened afterwards but they have given their consent. Is that, how concerning is that for you? Because they may have given their consent for one procedure, but then something else occurred.
0: I am concerned about that because they aren't necessarily being interpreted everything that they're given to to sign. I mean, I'm sure it's like quick, you know, it's like, oh, this is what this is, here, sign it. I don't know if they fully understand what they're signing also there is a power play there Um, if somebody who whose custody you're under is telling you to sign something regardless of whether you understand it or not most people are going to sign it especially um, women who have just arrived from other countries who have suffered a lot, who have traveled for a long time, um, who are all of a sudden in the custody of the government and a private corporation. I mean, there's a lot of pressure there to, to do whatever you're told to do.
3: Attorney Alexis Ruiz, founder and managing partner at Zambrano and Ruiz. She's representing women who have been and are currently detained at the Irwin Detention Center in Osceola, Georgia? Attorney Ruiz, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you, Rose. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at CF
3: Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Parking lots, public streets, and highways are becoming the locations for large gatherings known as car takeovers or side shows. There are drivers doing donuts. And then add this, street racing. It's all a problem. You may recall last week on the program, Atlanta City Council President Felicia Moore talked about the challenges in combating this illegal activity.
2: The police department, I think, is evolving as the situation gets more and more out of hand and they monitor social media as well. And I believe they know that the police are monitoring them. And so they're finding uh, codes, as you say, or other ways to communicate with each other so that the police department doesn't know where they're going. And one thing people may not realize is, you know, everybody complains about, oh, it's in my neighborhood or they're on my street. But the reality is there are in many neighborhoods and on many streets at the same time, which makes it very difficult uh, for the police. We do have some dedicated crews that are doing it, but if they're um, blocking intersections or speeding through a particular time, uh, part of town, and there are four different groups, and it's not just in Buckhead, in Midtown, it's all over the city. you are in four quadrants of the city. It makes it very difficult to have enough police presence to be able to deal with it. You may have two or three police cars, and you have have hundreds of uh, street
3: racers now street racing in the state of georgia is a misdemeanor offense and offenders can be fined up to one thousand dollars face some jail time up to at least a year and they can also have their license suspended street racing is not just a problem in the atlanta area it's coast to coast now according to a los angeles time report 179 people have died in what they call speed contests in la county alone between 2000 and 2017. And my next guest knows firsthand the tragedy that can occur when this happens. Joining me now is Lily Trujillo. She's the founder and executive director of the California-based nonprofit Street Racing Kills. Lily, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
1: No, thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciate it as well.
3: And I understand you're, uh, you're in California, so we really appreciate you taking the time. We're waking up a little bit extra earlier to share your story with <laughs> our listeners. And that's where I want to start. Tell me about your daughter, Valentina.
1: Valentina was uh, an amazing soul. Uh, Of course, my daughter, uh, unfortunately, she, you know, passed away in uh, December 7, 2013, due to a street racing crash. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was just a high school student, you know, um, at the time I was a single mom and all I cared about was just You know coming home and feeding my two children and working and that was it you know taking care of business every day making sure they had a roof over their head um i had no idea what street racing was at the time but she was 16 years old uh, when she passed away
3: december 6 2013 i know it's a day that you have talked about so many times it's a day that changed your family's life forever can you take us back to that day lily
1: Yes, of course. Um, it was just like any, like any other day. Uh, she, uh, many times she will have sleepovers. And then at this particular time, she says, I'm going to go spend it at my best, friend, best friend's house. Uh, can you take us? But before, can you leave us at another friend's house? Because we're going to be, you know, playing makeup, doing some cooking, and then from there, we'll go over there. And uh, I dropped her off. And when I dropped her off, And I saw her standing there in front of the door, waiting for the other girl to open the door. And and, um, she had a little unicorn backpack, and she looked so, so beautiful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I don't know why, but I got teary-eyed when I saw her. And I just thought, she has such a beautiful life. You know, I'm originally from Mexico City, so... I didn't grow up here, so it was it's different over there. Mm-hmm. And here I'm like her Uber driver, right, taking her here, <laughs> taking her there, ever picking her up at the beach with her friends. And I should typical teenager. Um, um, little did I know when I got teary-eyed that that was the last time I was ever going to see her alive. Um, so I dropped her off and I went home. You know, waiting like always for her just to text me when she would, you know, get to her other girlfriend's house, and I fell asleep. Um, I didn't know that they got invited to a kickback party. That's what teenagers call it now. Mm-hmm. And the girl with the, the house where they went and they said, okay, let's go to these parties in the same city. So then from there we can go to the, the house when I'm going to spend the night. Um, as I said before, I was just, you know, just, I fell asleep. So I wasn't aware of what was going on. So, um, At the party, unfortunately, there was alcohol. There was a bunch of, you know, older, older, you know, kids there, uh, some college students as well. Uh, Here you have three girls that as soon as they go in, they give him a drink. Um, The kid that took him there, he was uh, 17. He was um, shy of uh, 18 a week. All of a sudden, you know, I have no idea what's going on. I get a phone call. And it's just telling me, hurry up, hurry up. Valentina was in a crash. I don't know where. And I just hear this kid screaming like crazy, very upset. So what I do is I just, uh, I get my son, he was 22 at the time, and we take off wherever they told us to go. When we get there, there's nothing but yellow tape. And I didn't know that when there's yellow tape, it's because there's been a fatality. They just told us to go to one of the hospitals. I go to the hospitals. I'm walking, running. I'm looking from one place to another in the emergency room, trying to see what's going on. So I see her best friend and she's crying with her mom. And I'm like, where's Valentina? Where's Valentina? Because I'm trying to find her. I think she's in another room. Crying like crazy. She just tells me, Valentina, died." I collapse to the floor. My son picks me up. I don't want to believe that she's dead. I have no idea what's going on. They tell me to go to the house because the police is waiting for me there because they have to talk to me. And I'm hoping, thinking, that is because she's probably in another hospital. Uh, When I get there, they, of course, confirm that she had passed away. And all I remember is my son nodding his head while he's identifying his sister on the cell phone. So, the last image my son has of his little sister is her death. Um, I lost it. I don't remember much the funeral or nothing like that. Uh, my son basically had to man up and take care of everything and call the family. So, it was later, um, maybe weeks, a month later, that I finally started reading the report and see what happened. And what happened was that um, on the way to her girlfriend's house, this boy decided to, the boy that took him there, he is the one that was taking them there, the three of them. Mm-hmm. And on the way there, um, he got challenged to a street race by an ex coworker. Valentina was in the back seat sleeping, her girlfriend right next to her, and the other girlfriend was in the front. As he decided to straight race, he was going over a hundred. This is at one o'clock in the morning. He thought he was gonna make uh, the yellow light, but he didn't turn red and he hit an SUV and then a fence. It was a a really, really bad crash. And um, Valentina was uh, partially ejected from the window and uh, passed away from her head injuries. that's what the coroner, ended up uh telling me and i thought to myself what did it uh, what did i do as i'm sitting underneath <laughs> a parking lot uh building thinking while reading the report again and i said why did i do wrong what did she do wrong shouldn't she have gone to that party shouldn't have let her spend the night uh, was she being bad was she being rebellious was she and i said no and then i, I, I tried there and not was it this was it that And I thought to myself, had not he been street racing, she would still be alive if he didn't take that challenge.
3: Were there any charges filed against this young man or the other driver, Lily?
1: The other driver uh, ran away. That can happen. It's very common with street racing. Usually, that's why street racing is so hard, you know, to figure out sometimes and they can say, Possible street race. The driver, most of the time, gets away. And yes, he he escaped, and um, there was nothing done that I know of uh, to find to find the other driver. But I, uh, this uh, particular driver, the one that was the boy that was taking them home, he was charged, but he was charged as a minor. He wasn't charged as an adult, even though a week later he turned eighteen. So he went to join court.
3: Was Valentina the only one killed that night?
1: yes she was the only one
3: i understand lily that shortly after valentina's death you had a conversation with your son luca what was that conversation about what did he tell you
1: well i was uh, uh this was through you know i when everything was happening and i was just out of it i, I was just uh, i was in my bed for days days while all of this was happening. And I remember just being there and all of a sudden he comes and, you know, gets in bed with me and holds my hand and tells me, mom, I just want you to know something. I want you to know that you still have me to live for and that I want you to be a grandma and take care of my babies. And you still have me. And I just looked at him. I were both just crying. And look, just tears are coming out of our eyes. It's not like we're crying, crying. And I looked at him and I squeezed his hand. I told them, I'm not going anywhere. I'm here. I'm here with you. And um, we both, I think, well, I remember. I think I went back to sleep. I don't know. <laughs> um, he's my reason for living. Mm-hmm. My son is definitely my, my reason for living and being, in 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 this world still but um i knew when all of this happened the pain of losing a child is nothing like no other and i'm pretty sure uh, a lot of other parents out there that have lost a child no matter what it's it's a completely different pain it's uh, every every part of my body was throbbing the hair my nails everything it's just You just cannot see your child from one day to another disappear. Lily, you said you
3: weren't even aware that the street racing, that the kids were even doing that. When you found this out, did you talk to other parents? Did you talk to other kids that they say, oh, yeah, this is something that we do all the time?
1: Oh, well, at the time, yeah. (laughs) I didn't even know what it was, you know. All of a sudden, I started seeing it more. I think it's uh, when it happens to you is when you start finding out. I start finding out how, how, what a problem it was. Uh, like I said, I had no idea. I start seeing it in the news. Before, I, I don't think I ever read about it or nothing. I start hearing it more. I started, I would see it all the time, everywhere. Mm-hmm. Different kinds, you know, uh, I started, I, I learned a lot about it. I learned about speed competitions, takeovers, I mean, uh, Underground street racing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I kind—I I realized that there was so much of it. And how common it is, especially, especially among the youth. Especially among the youth. It, it, it's very, very, very common. And um, uh, young people are fearless. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's when I realized that um, I had to do something about it. Well, I, I didn't know what I was going to do.
3: <laughs> well, let's talk about that. You said you you had to do something about it, so you're the founder and now executive director of Street Racing Kills. When did you make that decision that you were going to start an organization to bring awareness about this?
1: The first thing I thought when I was underneath that parking lot was that I I didn't know what I was going to do, but I was going to do anything I could to prevent a parent from losing a child, to prevent this horrible pain. I got invited within months to speak at one of uh, the schools where Valentina's friends were. Mm -hmm. And they just told me, would you like to come? And I'm like, okay. And I went there and I walk in and I see all these, you know, high school students running around. That would have been, you know, my daughter. And um, all I had with me was a poster of my daughter, my dead daughter. And it was pretty hard, but I went inside the assembly and we put the poster up and I spoke for the first time and I saw the reaction on the students I saw boys tear up I saw people raising their hand asking questions and it was the first time that I smiled when I left I had a, a, a beautiful feeling I felt her with me and I knew we could make a difference. That day is the day that I decided that I was going to found the organization.
3: And now when you speak to students, but it's just more than speaking. You actually, you show vehicles in the mm-hmm. aftermath of, of these street races. What's their reaction?
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. I, I, I love it. Um, it's, um, it's, they can see when they see the crashed car, what it does they see the consequences of us. We show videos, we do reenactments, especially the hospital scene is one of the best that sometimes the drama club does it or the kids do it themselves when, they, when we're doing the assembly. Uh, they they see uh, videos, the crashes that we been police officers that actually explain to them, this is what happens when you're speeding. This is what the vehicle can look like after.
3: Hmm. Here in Georgia, as I mentioned, coming into this segment, street racing is a misdemeanor. In California, what what's the law in California, and especially if someone dies?
1: It, it depends if you are a minor or if you're an adult. Uh, so, for manslaughter, uh, for uh, like it happened in Valentina's case, the most I can give them is a year plus community service.
3: That's if they're but a minor
1: if they're a minor and they usually get out earlier uh, with good behavior. And we are uh, fighting for that to change. We've had uh, recently a crash uh, where two teenagers were racing and they did nothing all day. And that was different, I guess, even though the law is the law, it all depends what kind of an attorney you have. These kids were only required to write a letter to the family, they didn't do any time. So it varies, even though the law is law, it, it, it definitely varies. And depending on uh, the attorney that you have, uh, the, uh, the district attorney makes a decision at the end. These are the things that I learned with time. At the time, I didn't know anything. So one of the things that we do at Street Racing Kill is also we mentor and we help victims of crashes. Because at the time of the crash, and when you lose someone, you don't know what the heck happened and how the system works. But, and there, there is bigger charges for manslaughter, uh, uh, could be four or five years, even more for adults.
3: Lily, have you had a conversation with a young man that was driving that night, Valentina, was killed?
1: Uh, yes, I did. At the beginning, um, I wanted to know who he was because I didn't know him. And uh, I asked to meet, to meet him. I didn't get much support from the parents, but I was able to just meet him. And when I saw him, I saw this teenager, was by then 18, scared. And he came and told me, I don't know what to tell you. And we just both cried. And he, all of a sudden, I became like his mother. And he starts telling me, it's not fair. I didn't get to have anything of hers. I didn't get to go to her funeral, and I wanted to, and I see everybody with something of hers, a bracelet, a necklace. Uh, I don't have any, I didn't get to have anything. And now I have all these charges that I am gonna accept. I have to, you know, accept everything, and I don't know if they're gonna kill me there. So he was very, very, very scared. Mm -hmm. Um, We hugged, we cried, and he told me this is the first time I ever feel a little bit of peace, thank you. And that was it. I went on, you know, doing what I was doing. And all of a sudden, I found out that in seven months, he's out on good behavior. I didn't say anything. I was upset because I had no right for anything. And I already had the organization. And it was not about revenge or anything. It was about consequences. Um, How can I tell this or well, the kids at high school that he got out in seven months when they, because they do ask me many times what happened to him? Uh, how, how long was he in there? And uh, I, I really don't like telling them that he got out in seven months because I, I want them to know there's consequences. And this mm. is very, very hard. That's why we're fighting for more uh, stricter laws here as well. And
3: Lily, how big of a problem is this in Los Angeles County? And do you feel like authorities and even with efforts through your organization and other organizations Are you all making any progress in not only just educating the young folks, because there are adults that do this too, but do you feel like there is some progress being made to combat this activity?
1: It depends on the uh, county here, and some we are a little bit, and some we're not. there's honestly out of control here in Los Angeles as well. We have street racing task forces in different counties Mm -hmm. in L.A., um, I have partnered with, uh, with them as well since we met. Uh, I take care of the education part as much as I can. And they actually, they are, there is a, when I first started in 2016, and being more of an advocate and doing more, uh, the street recent task force have already started since 2015. And that was the first one in mm-hmm. LA. Now we have, even in San Francisco, there's one. So these street racing task forces really, really, um, they have a whole room, because I've been there, where there's actually several monitors and they are um, on Twitter, they're on Instagram, and they're on Facebook, they're everywhere, checking everything Well, 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 well to see what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So when there's a takeover, and as you understand a takeover is when they take over a street, so they can do either side shows or racing or donuts or whatever they're gonna be doing, um what we have done here i don't know if they're doing it in atlanta is they go there right there they catch them. they let them set up they already know they're going to be there and then they, they start doing the arrest and mm-hmm. taking every even if you're an, an spectator you can still get fined and arrested as an S spectator so they just scatter like crazy and they'll go someplace else it's like a cat and mouse game mm-hmm. if they catch them right there they'll take they, they already know where they're going next so it is um it is a big problem here, but the street racing task force are really cracking down on it. But still, still is a big problem, especially with um, street competitions, because sometimes there are, those are just spontaneous. That's not something prepared that there's nothing they can do about it.
3: There are plans to expand your organization to North Carolina and beyond.
1: Oh, definitely, because um, it's a problem everywhere. It is a worldwide problem. <laughs> You know, I mean, we we have a map at the office where we put everything and then, of course, Atlanta's there, Texas is there, Uh, New York, I mean, you name it, Ohio, I mean, a place that you wouldn't even imagine. And yes, North Carolina, we already have someone that is our outreach coordinator over there. And uh, we offer, we have plans of going to Pennsylvania next year to speak to an awareness program over there. And we're going to go to Texas as well. So we go anywhere they need us and if they want us to, um, to have street racing, kills in Atlanta, if you will have us, we'll be happy to go there and provide education uh, to the youth because we believe that you have to start from scratch and educating mm-hmm. the youth of the consequences of um, street racing.
3: Lily, you have a, a model for your organization, and I'd like in our conversation with you sharing that with our listeners. It's about life.
1: Live for a while. I I ask everyone to live what she couldn't live. And not just her. Every every victim of street racing didn't get to live. And I'm talking about adults as well. They didn't get to finish their plans in this life. So I ask everyone to please live what they couldn't live in this world.
3: Well said. Lily Trujillo, founder and executive director of the California-based nonprofit Street Racing Kills, This is part of our ongoing conversations as it relates to what Atlanta and other areas are trying to do to combat the activity. Lily, thank you so much for sharing your story. Our condolences on the past of your daughter. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
3: Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an
0: in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen at WABE.org or wherever you find your podcasts.